The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. It's 9 o'clock in Trinidad and Tobago. And uh, usually at this time on a Thursday... We have one of those programs, lots of information for you, and it's Doctors on Call. Let me welcome your host, that's Dr. Rambokas, and she'll be telling us today what's taking place on this edition of Doctors on Call. Dr. Rambokas, good morning to you. Good morning, Satish. Good morning, Dr. Watson, and good morning, listeners. Hi, good morning. So I just want to briefly introduce Dr. Nadia Watson. She graduated from the University of the West Indies Medical School, Mount Hope in 2006 with a Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery. She pursued a master's program, which was being offered by the University of the West Indies in palliative care medicine and graduated with distinction in 2014. Dr. Watson's private practice, the Healthy Living Medical Practice in Bistabella, is an established practice where she does family medicine and palliative care consultation. She has gained a vast amount of knowledge and experience in her 17 years of practice. Both her patients and their families have continued to place their trust in her, and she continues to provide excellent care for themselves and their families. She has extended her knowledge and valuable information on medical and social issues to include social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, her top tip segments becoming very popular and informative and continues to keep up to date with current medical information and trends. So we want to welcome again, Dr. Watson today. Hi, good morning. So good to be with you today. So Dr. Watson, how long have you been practicing medicine? Uh, hmm. It's about 17 years. Uh, I graduated in 2006. But in terms of doing what I love the most, which is palliative care, I've been doing that since 2014. So, yeah, that's that's basically how long I've been out there trying to do my best, trying to, to save everybody out there if I could. <laughs> what was your motivation for choosing medicine? And when we'll talk about your your specialty, which is palliative care, but was there any particular patient or event in your life that motivated you? Oh, uh, I will give you this. I did a first degree in zoology, and the main job I could get, I always wanted to be a doctor. Of course, I was a person that loved life. So, you know, getting four A's at A level wasn't as... Uh, important to me back then but after finishing my degree um and working in a library because that's the only job i could find i said you know nadia you always had this thing inside you want to be a doctor let's just apply and i applied and i was shocked they, they just said yeah come on let's go and i was like this is fantastic and that's really how i entered into medical school okay <laughs> Did you enjoy your time in medical school? Ah, that is a difficult question, child. <laughs> I don't want to discourage other people that, that want to become doctors, but let me tell you, you will know as well that I tell you, it was five years of intense, intense studying, and it was nonstop. 
And unless you are mature enough or have that inside of you to be consistent, that is not something for you. I think the first day I really enjoyed being a, uh, enjoyed what I did is the day that I graduated and became an intern. That five years, I think I quest, being a student, I questioned myself every day. Did you question yourself every day? Almost every day <laughs> until, until I realized that a human side took over and um, you had an opportunity to alleviate human suffering. Yeah, yeah. That I said that came into into me when I graduated. The day I stepped onto the ward as a doctor, that me looking back and thinking, what am I thinking by doing this? That just disappeared. Just just flew up in the air. And I have loved it since. Yeah. So what was your motivation for choosing something like politics in particular? This story is a is a is a kinda I was working in I was working in Petrotrin as a, as a doctor on the ward in Augustus Long Hospital, and the head of the department at the time told me that I had to go to the seminar. So it's basically I I couldn't say no. I had to go to the seminar on palliative care for two days, and I wasn't too happy about it because I didn't know what palliative care was. I sat down that seminar. And that was the first time that I just felt something inside of me that said, this is what you need to do. I don't know what that was. I went, in fact, I reached early the second day, the second day of the seminar, so I could get front row where I could answer 5 million questions um, to the guest speakers. And as I found out that they had a master's program that they were trying to start, I went straight at the time to Dr. Simangal, and because he was part of of um, forming this this thing called palliative care, the master's program, and I signed up, and I have never looked back. It's one of the I think best decisions I ever made, but it just spoke to me. I don't know. I can't explain it more than just that. It's it's I suppose like any doctor that does any kind of specialty, it has to be something that they love and that that drives them. That seminar drove me to want to do this. So what exactly is palliative care? All right, so I'll give you a Dr. Watson vision of what <laughs> palliative care is, right? So it's really um, taking care of a patient with a life-limiting illness. And a lot of people just think it's cancer, but there are many things that are life-limiting. You can have heart failure, you can have renal failure, you can have um, HIV, a well, AIDS. Um, so you can get any sort of like heart disease patients. You can get all sorts of patients that come into COPD, et cetera. Um, and what we do is that we offer them a better quality of life. And people want to know, how would you give a dying person a better quality of life? Well, the first thing is by giving them the dignity that they deserve by providing symptom management. So we are highly trained in especially pain management, but any sort of symptom, nausea, loss of appetite, etc. Um, we also incorporate the family in all our sessions with patients. So this is coping. We, we try to give family members coping strategies um, for the caregivers and the loved ones of this patient, because a lot of times they, they afraid every time they see something new happening they they don't know what to do so we actually guide them and also we help um guide patients and their families in terms of medical decision making because 
at the end of life, you want to at least have an advanced care directive, meaning these are certain things that you want for yourself. Don't put my no tube, don't do no um, chest compressions. If I if I, if I st stop breathing, um, I want to have a, a decision on how I want my end of life to be. So that's what we do. That's in a nutshell what I do. Have you seen like a resurgence of a lot of chronic disease, whether it be um, renal failure, cancers, and that palliative care is becoming more and more important? Of course. Um, let's say back in 2014, 2016, there was a... I mean, this is one the time that we actually were trying to focus on palliative care because we finally we have a bunch of doctors that have done it and we graduated and we started to look at the amount of cancer cases over the um, over one year in our small country like Trinidad and Tobago and we found it was like over 2,000 patients have been diagnosed with, um, with a terminal illness and we're talking more cancer patients. But that was, um, that's just one example of what we, we noticed and in terms of what palliative care would offer um in in, in go back and, and ask me that question again before i stray off that topic because i was going to my own world there so let, let, let me hear that question is there more cases that you are seeing and that requires palliative care all right so okay so the answer to that is yes so another big thing that we're seeing is like um, COPD patients. This is when they have emphysema and bronchitis um, with episodes where they're extremely short of breath. We're seeing a lot of heart failure, renal failure, but that's all because of the fact that we have such a high amount of diabetes and hypertension um, in Trinidad and Tobago. And I'm, I, do, I do a little segment, and I'll talk about that later, where I, I try to talk and tell patients, listen, you can live your life, do what you want, but you know, try to stay as healthy as you as you can be because a lot of patients think that okay, they get cancer, or they get um, diabetes, hypertension. That if they get a heart attack, they'll just drop down and die. And ten percent of people have that luxury of just dropping down and dying. The other ninety percent don't, and then they are bedridden, bedbound. They lose their dignity because somebody has to take care of them. And that's why I try to push the entire um focus on living well best quality of care enjoy your life but still do everything in moderation so your advocate of prevention is better than cure of course of course because you put in right now let's say for palliative care patients we have like small little um bed space in different places that actually provide hospice and palliative care. So like Cora that was developed in 2014, 2015, they have 12 beds. They have excellent doctors, of course, but they only have 12 beds. In Living Waters, which is more like an NGO, it, you have 12 beds. And I think Fetus is now government run, that's 12 beds. So you have patients with multiple issues in Trinidad and Tobago, renal failure, heart failure, cancers, etc. And you tell me that you have three major places with with um 12 beds yes it's a big big issue so that's why and you put a heavy burden on normal hospitals because 
people that's supposed to be in those other institutions can't get beds. So there's a burden on the public on the public health system where those patients are kept on wards, and there is nothing put in place where these patients can go go home and get like like you know like in some first world countries where they get palliative care nurses or hospice care nurses to come and take their take care of them at home. So yes, um, you want to prevent all of the above for all those reasons. So by the time some of these patients um, reach out to palliative care, is it that their conditions are irreversible? Well, any people have a tendency to think that I need to see them two days before they actually die. And in a lot of other cases, that's when I get called. But palliative care is something that from the time you are diagnosed with any life-limiting illness, any single one of them, palliative care can come into play because we prepare you for different things. If, if, if even if it's, if it's something as simple as doing an advanced care directive, let's say you, you have stage two cancers of the breast or stage three cancer of the colon and the chemo and everything has been fantastic. You have to read up and look at the, um, the life expectancy. And usually you might see something like five to 10 years. So let's say you get something like this. It's aggressive tumor, it's still stage three, but you know it's an aggressive type cancer, and yet you have nothing put in place because the chemo and the radiation have cured you. They really, people really have in their mind that these cancers have been cured. It's not cured, you are in remission, and highly likely certain cancers are going to come back. A large percentage of those cancers come back. So you need to have these things put in place. Your advanced care directive, your advanced care, um, not advanced care plan and as well as the end of life um care that you will tell your family about so yes that is it's, it's really important to involve a palliative care doctor from the very beginning is there any particular patient in your practice or person that you have encountered that has made a significant impact on you i would say i had maybe like two patients like that the first one was a very young mother because usually i'll get to see maybe people that are much older but sometimes you have to deal with even very young and she was in her 30s and she had two little babies so while i was there giving her end of life care which was more symptom management taking care of her pain etc her two little babies hugging her up and and she can't even she can't respond to them. She can't hug them. She's in so much pain and distress. And you can see the children confused and not understanding why mommy can't do what mommy wants to do. And uh, my second case was a seven-year-old. I went to Idris, I think it was. I, I never went down to Idris before, but I went down there and it was a seven-year-old, very brave child. In my experience, children tend to be braver than the adults when it comes to end of life. So those were the two that I probably will never forget. You're tuned into the all-new Freedom 106.5. 106.5. Take you back to Dr. Rambokas and, uh, of course, our interview that's in progress. Doctors on call with Dr. Nadia Watson. Dr. Watson, welcome back. And 
we are talking today about palliative care. We talked about what palliative care is and how important it is, but could you tell us the different components of palliative care? All right, so in a perfect world, palliative care is something that is a multidisciplinary sort of of um, group of people. That's just, so that's what it is. It involves not just the doctors that are specialized in palliative care and hospice care, but also the pharmacists, specialized nurses, social workers, um, bereavement counselors, medical chaplains. So medical chaplains, I think we have two in Trinidad right now. One of them, thank God, is one of my very good friends. And they are, well, he's a priest, but medical chaplains um, guide you spiritually, regardless of what religion you are, and counsel you. So we have, in a perfect world, that's how it should look, um, especially the social worker part of it, because in in um, many instances, you have a situation where, let's say the person gets very sick, is the caregiver. How is the family going to survive? And that's where the social worker will come into play. Um, in the very, very best of circumstances in certain um, palliative care places, in, of course, in places such as the US and Canada, etc. You even have music therapy, art therapy. So you see the amount of things that are put into play to provide a full holistic approach to to, to palliative care. Um, in Trinidad, there is just us really. Sometimes we may get people to volunteer in the public setting to do music and to do the art therapies and hopefully a social worker could be available. I don't know if, because it's how much patients they have to see, they may be swamped, but um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the components. And in the, in, an, in the long run, we're hoping that in Trinidad and Tobago, we can develop it so it can be this perfect holistic type approach to the patient and their families. Right. At, at what stage or condition do patients or their relatives decide or advise on palliative care? Well, you're supposed to really be sending the patients as soon as they're diagnosed with a terminal illness, a life-limiting illness. But for me, most, of patient, most patients come to me when they are at end of life. So they have maybe days to weeks. Sometimes I have weeks to months. That's when I get called in, which is really not so much palliative care, it's more hospice care. Because at that point, we are just doing things that make patients feel more comfortable and give them the best quality and the best dignity that we can offer at the end of life. So we're trying to also um, sort of move away from people thinking that palliative care is something that you have to look into when you are about to die. The Good thing about introducing us earlier, as I mentioned before, is that we can do all of these things, which is symptom management. Because if you if you have um, if you have a cancer or something like that, there will be points in your life where you'll have you're not eating anything, you're not um, you're depressed, you have severe anxiety. Uh, mostly doctors don't deal with that aspect; they deal with the one thing is what they treat in. We treat everything as a whole, fixing all of that, including helping the family come to terms with what's happening. So really we should be from stage one of any disease, but no, I 
most of the patients, if not all, are usually end end of life. Yes. Could you walk us through, for instance, like a patient, let's, let's say, regardless of age, was just diagnosed with breast cancer, they should basically seek your assistance as soon as? Yes, as soon as, because then I start to prep you. I start to prep you about not listening to, like a lot of patients tell me that they will, they are cured. I ain't know about any kind of life-limiting illness that is cured. As I said before, you're in remission. If you're very, very lucky, and you can always remain in remission and pass away at the normal age that you're supposed to pass away at. But some um, patients are unaware that this cancer can come back, especially things like breast cancer, where, you know, it can come back in five years. It could come back in 10 years. And so I prep for everything. I say, yes, you're in remission. That's fantastic. But let's talk what if. You must always talk about what if yes we're giving you all the hope in the world we're happy everything's happening but if this does not work or if this happens are you prepared for the what if it doesn't remain in remission right and if you're talking about other illnesses well you know they have no cure for that if you have heart failure have heart failure if you have renal failure have renal failure all right if you have copd you have copd pulmonary fibrosis you have pulmonary fibrosis you know so there's no there's medication for that. But the biggest one that I find patients get the idea that they heal is cancer. And I think we need to let them, it's not it's not to make them depressed or sad or, or stressed. It's just to prepare them that there may be a chance that this thing could come back. Because a lot of them feel, get, go into like a shock, like they were cured, you know, and this, this and the other. Um, I think sometimes doctors are afraid to discuss the what if. So I think doctors need to be trained in how to break bad news and how to talk about the what if so that patients don't think, oh, I'm cured, I'm fantastic, everything's perfect. Yeah. You mentioned something called advanced care directive and plan. Does that start at an early stage and then something called end of life care? So those are separate things. Um, stages in palliative management? Well, I would always say, if you ask my husband, I already have an advanced care directive and nothing wrong with me. I have no illnesses, nothing. Everybody should have an advanced care plan because suppose I walk down the road and I get bounced on by a bus, right? The, it's true. It's, and, you know, it's if I die or if I end up on a machine as a vegetable and I need a ventilator to live. My husband already know that that plug needs to be pulled. So you, I would advise people, terminal illness or not, please have an advanced care plan. What do you want for yourself if you cannot speak for yourself? Suppose you um, get a massive heart attack and you are in ICU and you're living in a coma for like two years. You have to have this advanced care plan because then it would say, if I end up on a coma, I end up on a machine please tell me goodbye all right um end of life care of course um i already i have that as well if so and so happened if this happened to me this is how i want to be buried this is who i want to come to my funeral this is what i want for my children that's the kind of things that are end of life sort of care um issues and everybody should have that because everybody dies 
that's the thing that people don't like to talk about is like this taboo um death is like oh my god shut shush don't ever speak of that we all die you can be a billionaire you could be the most famous person on earth mozart beethoven the man from apple i remember he named now rich what's his name steve jobs yes they all can die everybody dies and people have to start being comfortable with discussing death because life is short and fragile and you can die at any moment so yes have your advanced care plan have your end of life care plan do any of those plans involve like a do not resuscitate order or a resuscitate yes because now let me tell you when you do these advanced care plans you have to register it it will it will be best if you register it because if you register it with within the court then you can't have 500 different family members protesting about it because they you could write it and if you can't speak to yourself your sister your brother might say something different but if you have it registered that is it this is what we have to follow um do not resuscitate maybe one of them um i know you asked me to talk about the national policy we have any policy put in place for do not resuscitate her. what we tend to do in Trinidad and Tobago is we can write it in our advanced care plan and then we have like four people me another doctor and two witnesses sign off on it so that we can say this was agreed upon and we cannot go back right this is what it is with an advanced care directive you can always change it if certain things change in your life so it's and then you just go back and you register the new one that you have changed so it's not something that is forever never advanced care plans could always change you can always adjust them yeah and you mentioned that palliative care is different to hospice care how how is it different okay so hospice care palliative care is as i said from the onset of this journey from the time you get diagnosed we just deal with your symptom management we making your family comfortable we preparing your family for what's ahead and we doing all these nice things hospice care is when you have days to weeks of life so people in hospice would have okay so there's certain criteria into in in terms of to enter hospice you must have a terminal illness you must have days to weeks or days to months to live and usually hospices don't take you in if they think that you have more than 3 months of um of life uh hospice care we don't use we don't do blood tests we don't shove tubes down your throat we don't use jpegs we do nothing of the sort and we do not resuscitate and you have to sign off on that because if it happens you have to be prepared for this is where mommy daddy brother sister is going to go and this is most likely where they are going to die unless of course you decide to take them home and do the same care at home and have a specialized doctor come and you know just guide you as the days go on so that's the difference with hospice and palliative care hospice is really at the end of life where we just do things to give you quality of care and we are not giving you any sort of um what is it to serve to save you we're not doing things like that we're not going to do all the tubing and all this kind of thing nasogastric tube none of that things nothing happening to you that we keep you comfortable
Ngamag, we take you back to Dr. Jiram Bokas and doctors on call. Thank you, Satish. And we welcome back Dr. Watson. And we're talking today about palliative care. Dr. Watson, could you explain what treatment options and medications are available during palliative care? Okay, that's a good one because uh, we've been fighting to get drugs that will help um, patients, especially relieve their pain and their symptoms. Um, the only thing we have available that helps with the severity of pain that patients get in any life-limiting um, illness is morphine, tablet, or suspension. We have nothing else, and a lot of times these medications are not even found. We can't find them anywhere. We have to hunt and search for it. I tend to buy it in bulk once I get, once I call, especially like if you call somebody like Smith Robertson and they have it, I buy in everything because if you don't do that, it will disappear and your patients will not get pain relief and they will suffer and no one should ever be in pain. That should be a human right. No one should ever be in pain. Um, other things that I find are very hard to get would be things like Haldol and CPD, which are very important in patients that have extreme restlessness and agitation at the end of life. Yet again, if I find a pharmacy that's selling it, I try to buy all of it because I can actually give it to my patients that are desperately in need of it. Um, even things like um, um, IV midazolam, we haven't had in Trinidad for a very long time. Sometimes when patients are extremely agitated, we can give very small amounts and help them, especially at the end of life. So yeah, that's all we have. And we're trying to work with it. Some of those drugs are sedatives. So you just try to reduce their anxiety as well as their um, their pain in addition? Yeah. Yes, because a lot of, of patients are very anxious at the end of life, even depressed. Now, medication for depression, etc., we can get that. But the severe agitation and the severity of pain, you need strong stuff. Morphine is gold standard. Um, but the amount that we get in the country... And the amount we have to supply, we don't have it. it, it it's not, it's not, it's what we were looking for. Relatively it's, <laughs> yes, it's not very, yeah, that is exactly what I'm trying to say, right? So hence, I have been, uh, I trying to buy out as much as I can and my patients could come to me at any point and usually I have in stock. Oh, yeah. So my patients personally don't really have to fight as much as the others I do in public setting. Can chemotherapy and radiotherapy be given during palliative treatment? Uh, the chemotherapy part is a kind of controversial thing to me. I just tell you my own personal um my personal experience. I don't know what palliative chemotherapy really is because a person that really sick and dying and you know they have months to live, but you're still trying to shrink a tumor and the patient has absolutely no quantity, has no quality of life. They may get more quantity, meaning that they may get an extra month or two to live, but how are they living? They're living inside a, a hospital where they spend most of the day and when they go home, they're sick as ever. They don't want to see nobody. They don't want to hear nothing. I do see that as being any kind of quality of life. So chemotherapy and palliative care, I bought that. Radiation, however, does help. So let's say I have a patient with a lot of 
pain in her back because of met like metastatic cancers or anything like that and it's it's spread radiation therapy does help to decrease the pain decrease the the spread so the patient is not in this in the at the level of severity and we can get better pain control and better symptom management in a patient like that so yes the radiation yes for me the chemotherapy i still trying to figure that one out i am uh, i don't really be too happy when i hear that because you're giving them also false hope again you're giving them this chemotherapy to feel better to to live there's no quantity there's no quality of life for that there's quantity but no quality do you uh, recommend alternate therapies for instance like acupuncture or herbal supplements um at the end end of life yes you can do whatever you want right i tell patients if that makes you if that comforts you use it but at the beginning of any sort of um of any terminal illness i say listen to your doctors and take the medications please uh because we don't we're not trying to experiment and there are a lot of people out there just what 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 would you pay for to live forever you'd give everything right there are a lot of people out there that will be predators out there give giving you this false hope, take this $5 million drug and you will be completely relieved of your cancer, your heart failure, your diabetes, your hypertension. I'm sure you've heard of plenty on radio. So you would pay anything and people take advantage of that. You can do what you want, but I want you to be listening to your doctors and taking what the doctors say, especially in the in the early stages of, these, of any of these diseases. And if at end of life, like I think you have months and weeks to live and whatever, and, and I have you under proper symptom management and you want to take a, a, a lemongrass tea or whatever it is, I'm fine with that. Right. What are some of the risks that are associated um, in palliative care management? Okay, one of the, I have a pet peeve about this. Everywhere I go, I see a building getting put up saying palliative and hospice care. So I want to know who running the show inside of there. Because from what I know, there are like five or six of us in this country. And I certainly not running the building. And I don't know anybody else in South that running the building. And so palliative and hospice care is a specialty. It's something that you have to be trained in. When you have to give morphine and you have to give it at certain levels and you have to know how to adjust doses, you have to be specially trained to do that. So that's a very um, serious thing. So when you go to these buildings and you see these lovely signs, hospice and palliative care, you ask, who's the palliative care doctor there? Um, can I have a word with, with this particular doctor? Can I see documentation that this person is a palliative care doctor and has been trained in this field? I think that's very important for patients to do. You have to be able to, because you're spending the money, yeah? so you have the right to know. Secondly, of course, I'm giving you morphine thing and, a, and a, a trusting that that's the amount you're going to take. I'm hoping that you don't fill syringe 20 mils and just swallow the whole bottle or drink drink the bottle like if, you know, it's, um, it's carnival time. You're having a good rum. So that's another thing that we have to worry about. But we, most of the times, we we leave it in the hands of the caregivers and they are very, very 
um, careful in terms of dosing. They call me most of the times to make sure that they're doing it correctly and they put it away somewhere very safe. And if the patient does pass, they drop back the remainder in the office and therefore I can donate that because I don't sell that. If you bring it back to my office, I donate it to another person in need because it's not the cheapest thing. Eh? A bottle of uh, 500 milk can go as much as $500, $600 in public in let's say go to any pharmacy and buy it so it's not a cheap thing so do these patients in palliative care and their relatives by proxy do they get counseling um, are they encouraged to seek counseling i ask them if they need counseling um some of these funeral homes do have bereavement counseling i tend to in terms of getting counseling, they have to pay for it. Put it, put it that way. But some of them can get it through some of those um, funeral homes. But I think that when people need counseling, a lot of times they get it in the form of, you know, religion. Talk about God, heaven, these sorts of things. I, I don't believe in counseling like that because a lot of times if you lose your baby girl, seven year old you want to hear about god and then you you may be very angry with god you may have all these issues going on you don't want to hear about that so it needs to be neutral so if you want neutral um counseling i guess you have to pay for it um because yet again of the overburden of people that are counselors out there for the public setting they don't have the time and space to probably have time to, to counsel a whole family uh, in fact, you know what? I end up being a counselor, to be quite honest. They call me all the time and I counsel them. And it tends to work. So yeah, looks like I is a counselor too. <laughs> you mentioned that there were about six palliative care practitioners and um, it, it is a multidisciplinary team that manages or supposed to manage each um, person that um, has a particular disorder or condition. What about you yourself? Do you um, suffer with like being out or depression or anxiety? Because every day you see people suffer. Sometimes <laughs> I I wouldn't say burnout. Sometimes some something will hit me hard. So I have particular patients that I still have now and it upsets me if i go and i see things that i want done not being done and it gets me upset and then because of that it gives me yes it can give me a little anxiety it could make me short-tempered um but not in front of the family yeah? when i sit back down in the car driving back home that's when i just let out the scream and go what the hell da -da 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 -da, that kind of thing but um, in terms of burnout, no, I don't, I don't ever get that that feeling. And people wonder how I do this particular thing and and don't get that um, burnout. It's because at the end of the day, I provide a service that families are extremely grateful for. When a patient dies and I'm involved with the entire um, end of life process, families thank me and. Because of that, it makes me feel to go on. Yeah. 
We have to just take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking a little more with Dr. Watson on palliative. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. We take you back to Dr. Nadira Rambokas and Dr. Zonkol. Thank you, Satish. Dr. Watson, do you think that we should have a national healthcare policy guideline for palliative care? Of course. But we don't have one right now, I'm afraid. Um, We have no policies and protocols um, put into place. We have a lack of public education on this particular topic. Hence the reason I was trying to use all kinds of social media platforms to talk about this palliative care. I even do a show on Breaking Dawn every other Thursday, and I strictly do palliative care to bring more awareness um, that we are there are doctors out there that can make a big difference in your life. Um, we need more facilities, um, more bed space. We need more doctors because six a week can service 1.4 million people, right? And right now, like I do central into deep, deep central into deep south on my own with my assistant, and it's a lot. So if it is that they put something in place and they say, hey, Dr. Watson, come and train some of these people now. I'll be happy to do that. But as of now, it's just us trying to cover as much people as we can and also playing with doctors to um, refer these patients to us at an earlier, at at earlier time. And um, yeah, I, so yeah, I want, a, I want policies put in place because like even they do not resuscitate. There's no law here, you know, there's no law. So when a patient says do not resuscitate, that's why we have 5 million people sign the document because there is no law put in place for something as simple as that. So yes, we need some policies, we need more beds, we need more palliative care doctors and nurses and social workers. We need to actually have a proper running facility, different facilities in different areas, especially in San Fernando. So I see that they're going to start one up in Augustus Long, but um. Which doctor running it? Nobody called me yet. Well, I just saying. And, but um, but you know, the if these things happen, then that'll be perfect. But you can't just open a place. You have to put proper policies in place, proper training, proper guidelines, um, so that you know we don't do things and people think, oh, you kill my mother, I kill my father. You need to have proper policies put in place so that not only are we um better prepared for larger um okay okay so yeah so that that's basically what it is that's basically what we need so dr watson i want to thank you and i want to thank my co-host satish and to our listeners um for joining in and listening and for educating us um on palliative care and we just to close off how can you be contacted and how can patients reach you okay um you can call me at 319 8955 or you have a media platform and look for Dr. Nadia Watson or the Healthy Living Medical Practice. So I do a lot of top tips on palliative care as well as general medicine on my top tips on, on Facebook is a, I think my biggest platform. So look for the Healthy Living Medical Practice and get free, free advice. So thank you once again and enjoy your day. You too. Thanks for having me. Take care. 
The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5.